Enterprise Digital Podcast with Ian Aitchison and Barclay Ray, navigating the ever-expanding service management maze. Well, hello, it's that time again. It's the Enterprise Digital Podcast. It's unbelievable, but it's amazingly episode 40-40 of the podcast. Yeah, I'm still here, Barclay Ray, and amazingly, Ian Aitchison is still here. Uh, Ian, how are you doing? Hello, Barclay, once again. 40, that's amazing. Mm. That's really good. Yeah, I'm good. Life, life begins at 40, apparently. That's what they say. So things can only go uphill from here. Well, that's not been my experience. No, it absolutely has been my experience. Since I turned 40, everything's worked perfectly. You know when I get there. Yeah. Um, as is customary at this point, there's usually some... Trivia. Trivial pursuit that you that you might have brought to the table. Last week I did mention that I was wearing trousers, but I mean that you know it's hard to surpass that. Yeah, I'm still wearing them. Haven't changed. Um, what have what have you brought to the table this week? Yeah, this week less less nonsense, more just interesting innovation and things that are happening around us because you know it's not all complete stupidity. Some things are fascinating. So this this caught my eye this week. In fact, today. In fact, five minutes before recording this podcast, a robot has performed uh, tricky surgery without human aid. A robot has performed challenging surgery, joining the intestines together four times (laughs) on four pigs. And uh, it's the sort of surgery that apparently is very difficult for humans to do. And it was done better by the Smart Tissue Autonomous Robot, or STAR, as it's known. So this is another example of technology coming in and being better at what humans do. It's about automation gradually. We talked about automating vaccination injections, didn't we? Machine vaccination. Mm. This is another one of those. Quietly, slowly, the machines are making our lives better. It sounds great. As long as those operations were actually meant to happen, they weren't just done randomly by a robot. It is amazing, though. My only bit of trivia this week is it's one word, and then, then I'm going to move on. Wordle. Oh, Wordle. Yes. Love Wordle. I never want to hear a word again, ever. I'm quite happy that people are doing it, but I just don't need to see these squares every day. Thank you very much, because they don't tell me anything. But anyway, uh, ranting aside and moving on, we've got got automated robots and and all sorts of stuff. Really delighted to welcome our guest this week, Alan Berkson. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, it's great to see you. And we were just saying that uh, we had we'd had a catch up just before the pandemic, and that's pr- pretty much the last time I saw anybody. <laughs> You're the last person I saw, Alan. <laughs> but um, Alan, you work for Freshworks, um, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I mean, for those that don't know you, who the hell are you? What do you do? Where, where, where have you been? Where have you come? How did you get here? Give well, us a quick two-second sketch. If you don't mind, before I do that, I just want to say if Wordle, if you, if you share the ones where you win, you need to share the fact that you didn't get it as well because we need full transparency in terms of your Wordle experience. That's what I think. The, the transparency means nothing to me. It's just I just get confused. I see these squares <laughs> and I think, well, maybe maybe if I was younger, I would get it. But anyway, um, great so, to have uh, you on look, here. Tell, tell us a bit about yourself then and yeah. before you start doing Wordle. Uh, before I started doing Wordle, I, I've been at Freshworks. Uh, it'll be uh, so it's been a long time. 
Um, I am the uh, head of our analyst relations program, so I try to get Gartner and Forrester and uh, the tier two and independent analysts to say nice things about us. But I think uh, I also try to get good insights from them and help us do a better job of making products and telling our story. That sounds that sounds like a fun job. How how did you get that job? What were you doing before that um, brought you into that? It's an interesting. So I was doing communication strategy. And I'd blog and, to, and help people understand. And uh, the CEO was looking for someone to be an evangelist at uh, for, for then we were called Fresh Test. This was many years ago. And uh, I had a conversation with him. He quoted one of my blog posts back to me. And three weeks later, I was flying out to Chennai. And uh, it's been a whirlwind ever since. But uh, with analyst relations, I think it's a, it's a, it's a case of... Uh, Either I didn't step back late quickly enough or I drew the short straw. I'm not really sure which one of those things, but uh, it, it was an opportunity that we we were, someone from Forrester reached out and said, hey, we'd like to include you on a wave. Can somebody do it? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll step up. And uh, I think it's the coolest job in the organization. I have to know everything. I have to know what's going on with product. I have to know what's going on with marketing, messaging, customers, you know, even, even our own internal operations. So I, it's, I still think I have the coolest job. I'm agreeing with you there as well, Alan, in that it is a very cool job indeed. I've done a bit of contact with the analyst relations side of things, and it is fascinating. You do get an interesting dimension. It's not about, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not just about schmoozing industry analysts so they say nice things, but you're actually in a rare position to influence what some organizations say is the future of technology, which affects what other organizations do in their future. It's amazing. You actually sort of can be in a position to construct what the future in five years might be if you have the right conversations or am I just going way off there it's not about just schmoozing it's not it's really not no well look the 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 uh the the formula the format the uh the rubric that I was taught early on was influence and insights um you know most people only think about influence when it comes to analyst relations can I get the analyst to you know move us up and to the right but the insights analysts are are a uh a proxy for the largest customers in the world. And they're talking to everybody that, you know, not only our customers, but our competitors' customers and you know, people who are even not in the market yet. And they, there's a lot of value there to hear what, what, what are those conversations, what are those insights up against the, you know, the what, what are we planning to do and how does that match up? So the insights part, I think, is what a lot of people miss when it comes to analyst relations. I think it's probably an area that's probably not very well understood outside of that community and I think it probably could benefit from having a bit of a light shone on it maybe we can cover a little bit of that in this and as to what's important because I mean I do hear a lot there's a lot of kind of cynical views out there about what the analysts do and how people get on to these things and all that and I know that's not that's not correct but you know just what actually that role is and what's involved I think is 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 a fascinating area so um Maybe we can do a session on that sometime. We could just do a deep dive on how how these things all fit together and how vendors move in the industry and what makes them move. And that's fascinating, honestly. But now's not the time for all of that, I realise. That's not why we're here, is it, Barclay? What are we doing today? I have no idea at all. Um, but we will find out in a minute. But first of all, Alan, great to see you here. Thanks for joining. No, great. Thanks. That's great to be here.
Okay, well, we're introduced. We've we've touched a couple of things there, and actually, just made me think of of a. Well, I'm, I'm kind of renowned a little bit for these kind of like long drawn out questions that last the whole podcast, but I'm going to keep this one nice and simple. You have actually one thing that is is clear is that you've been successful in in getting, you know, your your company and your products um, well onto the agenda and onto the various maps that the that the analysts have what do you think is the key to that i mean and, and obviously that there's product development and there's changes in technology and so on but what drives that how do you go back to your organization and say we need to do this and we need to get in order for us to get to the, to that top level nine years ago whatever it was what's the thing that's really made that happen for you there's a word that uh, people use a lot uh, trust right I know that uh, John Custy posted something on ITSM Tools recently about trust. Uh, the, in the end, the, the reason why somebody buys a product is because of trust. They trust that it's going to satisfy the need that they have or, or to, you know, to provide a service that, they, that they're looking for. Uh, the same thing is with analyst relations is what is the value that the different elements of the organization are going to get from it? If I'm on the product team, is analyst relations going to help me build a better product? Is, if on the go-to-market, if on sales or marketing, is it going to help me do better go-to-market? Is it going to help me be able to sell more or you know get uh, more scale in, from that perspective? And it's about trust. The analysts are a a way to help. It's a, they're a trust point in the market. If if I'm in a buying position, how do I find out information about what what tool to get? I can ask my peers. I can ask my colleagues. I can ask a friend, I can you know, Google it, or I, I can talk to analysts who've also done a lot of that research already. So there are trust points. So if, from, from my perspective, what I tell my team is if the analysts are, have a very accurate view of what our product is and what we deliver in the market, that's our best bet. Not an inflated view, not a, you know, an, an overplayed view, but an accurate view, because then they're in a position to say, you're looking to do this here, and, and they're never just going to recommend one vendor. We're, you're looking to do this, here are the three vendors that you should look at. And my job is to make sure that Freshworks is one of those vendors, right? But it, it, in an accurate situation, because that's where the trust comes from. If it's a good fit, right? If, it's, if you're a good fit for the buyer, then that's ideal, because you want customers that come to you that are ideal for what you do, and that makes everybody happy. So that if they know the shape of your proposition, and someone is looking for that, has that shape hole, that trust of they're a triangle, they're a star, they're a square. This is an ideal fit for you and you get a ideal customer and everyone's happy. Exactly. Uh, there, there's a sense of, uh, there's some fallacies in marketing that you're trying to sell something that you don't have or oversell it. That, that doesn't create a great customer experience and that doesn't create uh, a, a happy customer over time. Um, you know, as the world has evolved from, you know, uh, on-premises to SaaS, you have a recurring revenue model, right? And so it's, it's very easy for a customer to stop paying and say, all right, I'm going to switch because it's not like I have to get rid of my, all the stuff that I have in my data center. I mean, I'm trivializing it, but that's to a certain extent. So it's about how do I, it, it, having happy customers who want to continue to be your customer is the goal. So that's about right-sizing and making sure you're, you're accurately finding the right, as you said, triangle or square to fit. What you mentioned, you mentioned analysts there. I mean, and then just give you a consultant's perspective on that as well, because I've been doing this for a number of years where I, I try to do the same thing. I, you know, people say to me, well, who are we? We, we want a product. 
you know, who who are they going to be the two or three that are the best fit, all that that kind of thing, and then you kind of try and make the process work in a way that will get them to those 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 top three or whatever. I suppose the question that I have around that is. How do we ensure the kind of long-term sustainability? And just the sort of background of this is that I don't really understand why so many organizations pretend I don't understand. The, 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 so many organizations keep buying products. You know, they buy the product and then it, for whatever reason, it doesn't work for them and they buy another one and it doesn't work. They buy another one. Someone like me, my task is, is to say, stop, you know, think about how how you're buying it and what, what you're doing and, and how you implement it and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. But I suppose the longer term thing and, and from the analyst perspective, are, are they always still looking at that from the longer term as to what should be done by the client as well? Because, I mean, I, I, I go to organizations and say, oh, yeah, we've got the Gartner report, we've got the Forest report, and it says, ding, 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 these clients, these products. And I say, well, is that right? Because, you know, have you thought of this? Should, I mean, you're talking about trust. How do we make sure that the part of that buying process also includes looking at themselves, if you like, when, when you're buying, as opposed to just going with what's the, the best in the market? That's a great way of looking at it, Barkley. And by the way, I'll challenge you. There's a fine line between a consultant and an analyst. And I'd say consultants actually do work, analysts don't, but then I get in trouble. I, well, I would say, but yeah. <laughs> But you, you look, your job is also to understand the market and to mm, and to yeah. understand you know, different tools. But look, we all know that in any transformation, it's it's tools is 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 one leg of the stool. You've also got people and processes. And I, from my experience, the analysts are doing that well. Look, Gartner has a thing they call their IT maturity assessment, and that's not just about the tools you're using, but it's about the, the processes you have in place and and the skills you have in terms of the people doing the work. So, you know, it, they, when people switch tools because something's not working, you have to question, is it, do they really understand what they're trying to accomplish? And is it mm-hmm. really just a, a bad tool? To be fair, at, 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 in a lot of respects, there's, there's so much overlap within the tools that it's hard to blame the tool from that perspective. I mean, there, there, if there's, there's, there's innovation and, you know, I'll probably get in trouble for not talking about innovation from our perspective, but... I think you, you've got a good point that you need to make sure that you have the people and processes in place, or at least understand your goal or where you know, or what, you know, what your horizon looks like from that perspective to really make it work. I'd like to take us back to trust again, because that's a really interesting word. We've mentioned it a few times. Um, it's funny, the word we often find popping up in these podcast experience comes up quite a lot. Today, it's trust. And we talk on this podcast, as you know, Alan, because I know you've listened to all of them. We talk quite a lot about people in an organization working differently, the principles and concepts of service management being adopted, possibly outside of the traditional IT space to help people work in you know, different ways, better ways, more efficient ways. And that comes down to you know, changing the, the, how we think about what we do. And it, do you think there's something there about an understanding of trust and relationships in organizations that can help them change the way they work and the, the work that people do? My background is in IT going back many, many years. And, when, and in, back in the day, it was IT said, Here, here's how you're going to do things and you're going to like it. We have, we have one color and it's this and that's what you're going to use. It wasn't about partnership. It was about a, you know, a sense of we've got to have control. Uh, that whole control factor has, has 
exploded beyond what an, a particular a, any given IT department can do. We understand that. So now it becomes how do I align as a partner with the business? And when you're aligning as a partner with the business, there's a there's more of a service provider customer mentality rather than a dictator. Here's what you have to do because we've made a decision, and that creates a different dynamic. Uh, when I talk to a lot of uh, our customers in terms of their challenges, trust comes up. I, you know, there was one 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 of my customers, Power. The, the when he came in, that was the biggest challenge. Nobody trusted that IT could serve them, and you know, they, they, we he uses things like CSAT. That CSAT is a customer experience score, not a not, not a traditional employee experience score, but CSAT or, or, you know, or the different KPIs. So instead of KPIs being uptime and, you know, and even, you know, SLAs to a certain extent, it's how happy are my customers in terms of how they're experiencing it. And what other, and, ha, and so how do I be a service provider? So when you talk about trust, um, back, in, uh, back in my communications days, I came up with a formula, I called it PET, proactivity, engagement, and transparency equal trust. So proactivity is, in the simplest case, it's listening to understand what your customer, what your customer, your internal customers, your employers are saying, but taking advantage of that technology to understand, am I getting insights from, from my data, from my analytics? How, how, are my, how are my internal customers using my services? And am I providing the right ones? Is there ways I can innovate? Uh, so being proactive, I mean, that's what you do in, in the market from a customer point, from a customer experience point of view. The same thing applies from the you know, in, enterprise service management point of view. The second piece, and this is, I think, really hard for IT, is engagement. Valuing the interactions and the communications. And we, we, we talk about words like collaboration, but also being able to communicate where, uh, where our customers are. And when I say customers, the internal customers, do, am I pushing them out to my service catalog and my portal? Or... Can they, can they hit me on Slack or email or SMS or whatever channels they prefer to use to engage, right? So that's making it easy for them to be able to get to you. It's like, how do I, how do I solve this problem? I, I hear too many people talk about, I have a problem, but I don't know who to call or I don't know how to get that help. That's engagement. That's basically making sure that, I, that, that you're available. And, and the third part is the, the T in, in, in PET is transparency. And the, the opaqueness that had been traditional uh, elements of, of IT service and uh, enterprise service, it's here's, here's what we're doing, here's what we can provide. If we make a mistake, here's what we did. How many times do you see you're in an office and everybody's looking around because the IT, the, the network's down and nobody knows what's going on? You know, and, and, are you, and then what happened after the fact and what are you doing to make sure it doesn't happen? So proactivity, engagement, and transparency are, are three elements I identified that you put those together, you're building the trust so that you can, can, that you have that element of, I've got a happy customer who keeps looking to me to solve the problems. Very good. I think it's the first time we've had a formula, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I like that. So, yeah. So listening, connecting and being transparent with an honest that honest that human approach that's that's very clear now people talk a lot about a human voice communicating not like a corporation but communicating like a human being and the, the humanity of communication is you know something that comes up a lot be, be human so uh, yeah i like that that's interesting 
I, I mean, I, I think I think that's really really useful, and, and it's the sort of thing that people can pick up and take away and use in, in a number of different contexts. Just going on to the sort of background on, on, on this podcast, which is the idea of enterprise service management. Um, what do you think that, because there's a number of different complexities with that in terms of who does it, who starts it, who's involved, how do we develop it? I mean, from a vendor's perspective, it, it should be, I guess, a, a huge opportunity because apart from anything else, the scale of it is potentially much bigger than what you might deal with just with an IT. What do you think, from the communication point of view, we need to do as as a, as a whether it's as an industry or a, or as a cohort of people that are interested in service management and experience in using service management? How do we really get go from it just being talking about IT to being actually being used in a wider context? I mean, you can bring in what what your thinking or experience might be with. Uh, you know, from the product side on that, because the product side is, is is driving a lot of it anyway, as we know. But there are so many challenges in terms of how people see IT. We don't want IT to drive this sort of thing because it's a business project or whatever it is. What, what do you see as the challenges, I, I guess, from the perspective of of a vendor, of, of how you can contribute to that and make that work better? I think that the challenge that IT leaders face is finding ways to be in the conversation about business outcomes. Because it starts with, every conversation with any type of transformation has to start with, how are we going to measure our success? And then it has to go through, what are the steps we're going to take? So if measuring the success is we stood up a service catalog for HR, that's not a measure of success. Uh, if, but if this, this, the measure of success should be HR had, wants to improve the onboarding by in terms of time by, by, by 20%. We want to be able to get people up to speed. And then IT has to buy into that. And then what is the what aspects do we need? Do we have the right tools in place? Do we have the right process in place? And do we have the right people in place to make it happen? So it's, it's less about a, the, the technology and more about uh, the, the outcomes. I think that that's probably the biggest factor. I see you nodding, Ian. Yeah, it's... Um... You talk about outcomes there, but you, you talked about being in the conversation as well. We, we've come back to outcomes a few times. There's a big shift, it seems to me. There's a big shift in how we think about things. Barclay, from your ITIL background, you know that the principles in ITIL 4, and they talk about focus on outcomes, not activity, or whatever the phrasing is. On my product, side, value. On, on my product side of things, building, building technology products, uh, all of the work around creating new innovative products is all about outcome now it's all about what are you trying to achieve not what it does but what's the, what's the reason you're making it in the first place so that, that feels like a big shift and then there's the being in the conversation which is the classic challenge i think from an it perspective that successful it is close to the strategy of the business and unsuccessful it and an unsuccessful business doesn't embrace the benefits of it that's not a question. right. Well, look, Ian, if you're if you're if you're IT and you're waiting for your business to come to tell you to ask you to solve a problem, you're you've already failed because that's the proactivity piece. So to be in the conversation, you'd have to say, "Hey, I see that uh, we have some we're lacking automation, or we have some broken processes in our facilities management. Is there, we have some ideas on how to how to improve our efficiencies there, or or, or get a better experience." 
Um, and so that's the proactive piece, which makes it feel like, oh wait, they're, they're, they're paying attention. They care about the outcomes here. Let's bring them in as a partner, right? Yeah, yeah, proactive, uh, identifying what we can do to help not waiting for them to come knocking on the door. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it is part of the challenge though. I mean, just the, the whole, you know, we've got, um, well, there's that book, the um, seat, a seat at the table, you know, that whole idea of how, how we get a seat, even just as IT, being at the, the right level of discussion, board level, C level, governance level, whatever you want to call it, to be more influential overall um but if we're then talking about being having a seat at the table the, the discussion about how we how we manage work across the organization how we do the enterprise that's another that's another level again and, and there's not really a, a well-worn path to that at the moment because it the only one really has been where the tools work well enough for people to go well actually that looks pretty good so why don't we extend it beyond IT into HR or finance or whatever. What, what are you seeing on that, Alan? I mean, how much how much are you seeing through your organization and sort of scope of that? Are there, are there more, are you, are you engaging with more organizations where you are doing non-IT work? Yeah, so the, the trend seems to be, uh, it, it starts with uh, some IT service management and then other parts of the organization, particularly if the, if the IT leaders are actively looking for other, other places to apply. Look, technology is not the solution, but if you've already come up with a, a service delivery structure, where else can I apply that within my organization to provide value? And that typically we see places in, in HR for things that we can automate, like an onboarding with workflows or facilities management or um, any anywhere where either they're they're doing stuff just by email or they're just doing it with a spreadsheet or they're, they're, there's no automation and there's a lot of manual processes involved. It, it gets harder as you move up to you know for small for really small organizations it it probably doesn't make sense for that. But if I think of that middle tier of organization where Maybe you don't have a full ERP system, but you want to be able to do some stuff with your legal or with your accounting to have processes and, and workflows within it. And that's where we're seeing that type of adoption where it's, it's adding that, it adds accountability, it adds tracking, it adds data in terms of statistics, and it adds workflows so we can get some more efficiency within the processes. Interesting point about the organization size, I think it would. It sounds familiar. Yeah. The, the idea that some organizations are too small to benefit from this. So, you know, there's no, there's no real big benefit in making that sort of change. Some organizations are so big that it's really hard to make a change. It's just really difficult. You know, you want to talk to the HR department, you're different geographies, different countries, different people, different politics, different agendas, but there's a sweet spot maybe of organization size and maturity where it is possible to get everyone around the table that are the decision makers that influence the behavior of everybody in the business and actually apply those changes. What a great position to be in an organization like that. I think you have to add a, the level of, or a layer of time because for larger organizations, it just takes more time. So it's harder to see the impact and it, maybe it doesn't last the tenure of the, of the leadership. Whereas within it, that, there's a sweet spot of organizations where I have the, uh, the, the level of complexity that, that is manageable and I can show a real impact and show real value. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Just again, a vendor's perspective, sort of looking forward. What what do you think the feel like the big moves 
will be in the industry. And I don't mean vendor landscape, and but I mean in terms of changes that will happen. I mean, there's, there has been, we had a long period where not very much happened. You know, we had tools around about the turn of the century that kind of did a whole pile of stuff and then nobody really used all of them. But then we got a lot of activity with you know, disruptive vendors and disruptive technology and disruptive commercial models and so on. Do you think it's going to be stable for a while or, or, or are you seeing more change that's either driven by the vendor landscape or the way that organizations are working? I see, if you go back to the, uh, maybe the proactivity and the engagement, I think those are the two areas where I think there's still a lot of innovation to happen. When you think about proactivity and you're talking about data and analytics, and uh, that's op opportunities for, you know, what I always love is, is if the tool can tell me something I don't know, or tell me, a tell me, give me an answer to a question I don't know to ask. And that's, that's, that's a, a next level. And that's, I won't call it AI, let's call it, I'll just call it analytics, because I think AI is sometimes overplayed from a perspective of what it can actually do. But to help me help me get more uh, value out of my data, and I think there's a lot of innovation happening there. And the other piece is on the engagement side in terms of there's no IT organization on the planet that's staffed well enough to do all, all its current work in any any new projects, right? It's just they're always understaffed. So how can I scale better? How can I automate things? And I think that's where, particularly in the communications, in terms of conversational interfaces, natural language processing, where I can help the that customer not feel like they're just talking to a bot, but maybe get some real value out of those, those automated conversations. So those two areas, I think, are probably the, the top from an innovation. I, I've seen that shift a little bit away from, if you like, the, the traditional, as Bartley said, you know, going back a few years and it was all about let's have a good portal. And we talked about a self-service, a catalog where you might put some HR things in it and some IT things in it and some other, other pieces. And then, um, Alan, you talked there about conversational interfaces. And obviously we're talking about things like Teams and Chats and you know similar. The, the topic that always comes up is, I, I, and maybe you agree with this, maybe not, but is the industry moving beyond the self-service portal completely? Because what's required for some form of portal for anybody is, well, they have to go there. They've got to move their hand, move the mouse, go to the browser, go to the link, go somewhere to report something or request something. You've got to go to get something. And the difference with this sort of conversational and as you get into bots and as you get into other things is you're bridging that gap and you're not requiring them to come to our portal, but you're actually able to come to them. Is there something there about that? it's funny when I first started doing our demos for our fresh service and being at events, everybody would come and see, we had a very consumer like catalog. So it looked like you're on an Amazon portal or something like that. And that was exciting. And I think there's a little bit of both. I think there's that shopping mentality where I'm look, I'm not really sure what I need. And maybe if I look around, I can find it. So I do think there's some value in portals, but that also becomes, how do I, how do I market that portal as the IT department? I'm in a business of basically marketing my services to my organization. So am I presenting the portal as, as a place to go find stuff? Is it the first place you have to go or, or do I have other options? And so I think the portal still has value. I think again, for that sort of that, hey, I'm not really sure. I think I, let me look around to see if I can find what I'm looking for or make it easy for me to ask somebody and not necessarily have to go to the portal to ask for somebody, but can I, can I do it in, Teams? Can I do it in Slack? Can I do it in WhatsApp or, or SMS or email or any other 
channel. So this whole multi-channel aspect to it. Yeah, for providing different ways for people to either get the help and information they need or have the help and information presented to them more easily. And I, I think everybody recognizes the multiple, multiple channels that we all we all love to use wherever we are these days. So yeah, that makes sense. It's managing expectations. And I think that this is something that most vendors, as from a consumer point of view, do really poorly. Uh, it's you know, managing and meeting expectations is probably the, the most effective thing you can do for your organization in terms of like, it's not about, did I solve the problem in an hour? It's, I told you it would take an hour and it took an hour. So I've managed your expectations, right? And that's a different level of satisfaction. Now, if you want to, want to negotiate a, a, to take a half an hour, let's talk about that. But here's where I can deliver and deliver consistently. All you have to say is, well, the SLA says I don't need to solve your problem for three days. So I'll come back. In three days. Is that okay? <laughs> that's, the water, that's the watermelon. One thing, just, just to give a, a, a bit of a different perspective on that, the more opportunities and places to do things, the more, more somebody like me just gets confused. And there's, no, there's so many different places I can go to do things. And I, all it means is like, I don't have, you know, I suppose a lot of people in their work, they've they've kind of lived in Outlook for 15 years, haven't they? And, and I probably count myself in that as well. It's actually quite challenging then to sort of step out of that and find your way into other things it's great if you can go i think the portal is a good it's still a good idea because it, you can go there and you can find stuff but when you can get the same message and the same attachment and the same group of people in teams and email and other things as well somebody of my age kind of goes help um so i mean you know i'm making a see i am making a serious point that that the navigation through these things must be as intuitive as possible i think for the the non-technology people when we, when we move outside of just this is just for people working in it if we're going to be doing stuff that is then passed out to people across the organization you know we need to make sure that the taxonomy and the the workflow and everything just kind of works for them and, and without partly, having to train them you know that, that's that's the biggest challenge that's the people and processes you can't just stand up a service catalog or stand up your mm. entire ITSM tool and say, here you go, it works. It's, I've got a, there's training and there's, there's, there's awareness, there's marketing. I have to market to my organization saying, Hey, this is how you do this. This is how you get the best service from us. Or here's, here's the process. And, and here's, if you're just stuck, here's how you get help from the beginning. I think that that's a, it, it, it's extra work that, and maybe the muscles don't, the, that those type of muscles don't exist within the organization to have that type of communication. I do actually know quite a few organizations, particularly in the higher education sector, where, where you know the IT department has got a communications person that's tasked with getting messages out and bringing them back in. And one or two forward-thinking companies, but not many, I have to say. And if we're talking about the uh, ESM model, then we're also talking about other departments that need to think about marketing what they do to the rest of the business. We're quite comfortable talking about it for IT, but you know, if you're rolling out publishing your catalogue from HR to the business or wherever, somebody needs to be promoting the fact that you can do that or the same problem will happen, presumably. You still need to be making that noise. It's just coming from different places. Oh, absolutely. It's that, and that's the partnership 
and the collaboration between IT and the, that organization. And if communication is not part of your plan when you when you when you do it, then then you're likely to fail. Meaning, how how am I going to market this internally so that people are aware of how to do business with me? I think that it's something that organizations forget forgetting the tool. I, I think that organizations just struggle with that cross silo collaboration. How do you do business with me? Do I do what can you expect from me? What can you not expect from me? And you know that I think is it, it's an outside of the tools conversation. That's more of the people in the process. Company culture almost comes in. Do you think that vendors should do more to provide guidance and help on those kind of things? Though, I mean, is there a point where you go, we can, no, that's that's. I mean, there's always going to be that point. But I mean, what what is that point for you? Do you think helping not just on implementation, but on well, I suppose ensuring success. I mean, it's in your interest presumably to have good implementation. So uh, what's, the, what's the scope of that, do you think? What's the limit Isn't of that? Isn't that what I'm doing right now? <laughs> well, look, there's a term people use, they call thought leadership. Um, I have a lightweight definition of thought leadership, which I, I sometimes use. And we talk about transformation and transformation requires people, processes, and tools. And I say that whatever you're selling, the other two are thought leadership, and those are the conversations that you have. That's the opportunity you have to have a conversation with your market outside of, of your particular tool to help show that you understand their pain points and, and, and what, the, what their struggles with and, and how they can be more successful. So that's, kind of, that's my perspective. And that's, I think vendors have started to do that pretty well. I think that they're, you know, it, it's not always received as thought leadership. Too often it's, it's presented as marketing. Um, and that you've got to make that separation. And it's not that, it, you know, it's got to be clear that, hey, uh, this, this is not about trying to sell tools. We're trying to help you do your job better, which then reflects back on us. And that gives you more trust that we know what we're doing, right? I really like that. I, I think that's because I, I'm not mad on the term thought leadership, the way it's used sometimes. It's just, you know, but actually distinguishing it from marketing in that sense, in a way that it can be used not just by people that you might normally think were thought leaders, I think that's that's a great distinction. And, well, and look, I, another one, Barkley, my friend Esteban Kolsky uh, likes to say thought leadership is is targeting people, is not helping people do their jobs better, it's helping people make better decisions. Yep, and therein is the definition of, I suppose, what analysts do, what consultants do, what yeah. should be what trainers and mentors do as well, is help people to, to improve their career. Well, we've, we've moved, we haven't talked about being a vendor at all, we've moved on to a whole number of <laughs> industry topics. Just, just finally, then, where do you think? I mean, we haven't really gone into detail on ESM, and we don't need to. But do you think it's a? Do you still think it's a thing? Because I mean, it, it kind of comes and goes, and it, it, you know, peaks and troughs in terms of its areas of interest and and what the industry might think of it. Do you do you see it developing that there will be more spread of service management across organisations? My thoughts from that perspective align with when is it when does it become its own bespoke tool? When is it a an accounting system versus a service management system? And I think that has to do with the complexity of your organization. And so I think that for and I think this is what what, what I said before in terms of the size of the organization uh, for mid-sized organizations. I think ESM is not only it's a thing, but it'll, it'll continue to show efficacy because it's really about 
being, putting yourself in a position to better provide serv your services internally to your organization. You need a tool to do that. Right now, you're doing it with spreadsheets and email. And that's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of room for improvement when it's, that's what you're trying to replace. So if you can add some automation and you can also add some analytics and some you know, data behind it, as well as improve scale, that's, that, that is a, a, a high value for a lot of organizations. So I think there's a lot of room for, you know, increased value from ESM. Excellent. Right. Well, that was an excellent discussion and some really, really good insights there, um, Alan. Thank you. The the pet, I've forgotten it already. The, the engagement was one. It was the proactivity. Wasn't proactivity, it? engagement and transparency. Transparency and um, thought leadership and marketing is nicely separated, but uh, different ends of a of the same stick. Well, and that was a real excellent discussion uh, just how i mean how do people get hold of you alan where where are you where can you be found and contacted if, if people would like to get in touch twitter is always a great place on berkson zero on twitter you can hit me up on linkedin but if you just google alan berkson i'm pretty easy to find <laughs> excellent well we've we've covered off the initial um the initial trivia of the conversation now we we cut to the quick and get to the real point of the conversation. Uh, Ian, over to you. Yes. Now to the real meat of the podcast, of course, the, the thing that all our listeners are waiting for, which is, as ever, to hear what our guests recommended uh, drink to put on the podcast bar would be. I usually play a little game with myself where I try and pre-guess what the drink will be, and sometimes I write it down, and sometimes I'm right. Alan, I haven't the slightest idea what your recommended drink would be. Surprise me. What will it be? So my recommended drink is a Pisco Sour. I know that. Are you familiar with the Pisco I, Sour? I'm familiar with it, yes. Many years ago, I did, I, I did the Inca Trail uh, to Machu Picchu. And uh, I'm sitting in a bar in Lima. It sounds like a joke, but I'm sitting in a bar in Lima. And they bring over this thing. And it, I'm like, what is that? Pisco? And Pisco is the, is, is the local liquor. And it was, it was great. I don't have it often because it's hard to get a good one. Fantastic. And those moments uh, sitting in a bar in the sunshine when someone brings you a just perfect drink, those moments that stay with us. So lovely. Thank you for that. That will definitely go on the bar. And uh, I, we've not had a Pisco Sour before. No, we haven't. We've, we've had a few, a few whiskeys and a few yes. gins and a few, one or two wines, not too many wines, but uh, that's the first Pisco Sour. So thank you very much. Um, Alan, thank you really so much for joining us uh, it's been a really good conversation and uh, we look forward to seeing you um hearing from you in, in future hopefully the uh, the world is going to open up so we can all actually meet up at um events and things again but uh, until then we'll say thank you and uh, thanks for your contribution thanks for having me guys i really appreciate it it was fun thanks ian we'll see you soon thanks a lot